Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. I could have sat with our next guest all day. Besides being a student of history, a long-standing member of the Greenville community, he is a renowned artist creating beautifully enchanting batiks, linacuts, and watercolors. Two months ago, I was fortunate enough to have been sketched by Mark after wandering into his gallery during a first Friday art walk. It wasn't my first encounter with his work, and this hopefully will not be my last conversation with him. Mark Malfinger brings his intelligence, storytelling, and character to this delightful conversation. And we invite you to join us now. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, on the campus of Bob Jones University. My, my parents taught there. My father taught cello and science, and my mother violin. Now we grew. I was born in Syracuse, New York, uh, in 1961, and we moved in '65 here to Greenville. So yeah, and uh, so it was a very rich life. I tell you, I was right in the hub of a lot of activity, and both intellectual and physical. Mm-hmm. You know, the sports and all. You had a wonderful intramural sports program. We have societies that played soccer and basketball and uh, softball against anybody could play that wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just fabulous. So I, I came from a very, and, and it's very rich intellectual environment because there's mm-hmm. no, this is a non-partying campus. Right. You probably have heard. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, we, we, we emerged if we weren't shipped for, naughtiness. Right, uh, right. We emerged with a pretty good education. Yeah. Were then your parents came specifically to teach at Bob Jones that was the That's precipitating factor for the correct. move. Correct. It's a very mysterious story because apparently there was a letter that had been sent by a guy by the name of Frank Garlock who uh wrote a letter talking about their wanting to have musicians at school. They knew that my mother and father were professionally trained. My mother went to Eastman to study both viola and violin. And my father's parents, he was a cellist, but his his parents were like titans of the music world in that his dad was in Weimar, Germany in 1925 and 6, 
studying with Emil von Sauer, who was Franz oh, wow. Liszt's choice student, prime wow. student, who, who was concertizing in Germany and Europe. So my grandfather ended up uh, wanting to concertize in America, but ended up teaching at Syracuse University for 40 years um, in, the science, uh, in the piano faculty. Wow. So that's the background. So Frank Garlock, apparently they lost the letter. It was seen blowing in the yard or something, <laughs> and they grabbed it and picked it up and read it, and they called Bob Jones, and here we arrive in our mint green Rambler station wagon with four kids and our parents in the summer of 65. Wow. And there. Were your parents particularly religious? Oh, yes. My father was an atheist to begin with. And he competed very favorably with the Jewish community there in New York, uh, in, in, in Syracuse. Uh, he uh, took great pride in, in really bearing down and doing well. He played chess and all, but, but mainly he was very, very well studied. And um, he uh, got sick. And ended up in a hospital, and, and it's kind of a mystery because they don't. He's never talked specifically about what his ailment was. We think it's something, a mental, emotional anxiety kind of thing, which was not a very popular thing to talk about back in those days. And so, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, but anyway, he he got into the hospital, and there, in sharing his room, you know, you have these curtains. That, sharing his room was a fellow who started asking him some interesting questions. He said, okay, now in the book of Isaiah, there are prophecies, and it doesn't seem likely that a man could have sold so specifically that Jesus was born of a virgin, where he was born in Bethlehem, etc., without having some God in the background. And my dad, being clever as he was, said, well, Jesus, being a very clever fellow himself and reading Isaiah, went about quite artfully fulfilling those prophecies and with sleight of hand, etc., able to do that. And the guy said, okay, I'll give you that. That's, that's a pretty interesting question answer. He said, but you still got a problem, and that's the thorny issue of the resurrection, which was witnessed by so many people and which powered the extraordinarily vigor of the Christian faith. Uh, apart from conquest uh, that powered the Islamic faith, uh, that you can't account for without something rather supernatural occurring. Right. And so my dad, his thinking process went like this. You know, I'm, I'm, for all my brains, I'm still sick. I think that it wouldn't hurt. I'll take Pascal's wager if I am... If if I take on God and I die, I'm safe with him. If I don't take him on and I die and he's real, I'm in trouble. Right. So that's Pascal's wager basically really boiled down to something very simplistic. And that's what he did. And yeah. then God started working with his head and he became a very, very tidy creationist Um very much uh, opposed to theistic evolution, very much a um, 
uh, seven-day, six-day creation, uh, mm-hmm. literal, biblical, because his thinking was this. <clears throat> if you espouse the theistic evolution idea, then after six days, a God calling everything good was not really the truth because they were half evolved after six days. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, so he he did not have any patience. He thought that theistic evolution was a concession to the evolutionary zeitgeist that was a very weak and twentieth century phenomenon that was um, just a reaction to the uh, scientific um, so called um, movement of the time, sure. and uh, he uh, he. Uh, Every time millions of years was mentioned in TV shows or whatnot. Although you have to understand that he banned the TV when I was three. Oh, okay. so we uh-huh. every all our time was occupied by either studying, practicing our mandatory instrument, or working around the house, or I, for me, playing outside and catching butterflies and stuff. Yeah, um, that was what occupied us and our family. And he uh, he really. You know, he's a good German work ethic. We all were expected mm-hmm. to get A's in school. And uh, it was a little bit painful. I got used to it, though. You know, it's like growing up a little bit Amish, maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, by the way, I got to see my first Amish mud sale a couple summers ago. It was extraordinary. It's right in the middle of COVID. All these kids running around with wonderful suntans. And I was paying for my son, Lyndon, who was about eight, 10 at the time, to get little rides with their mini horses and their mini Amish carts around this field. It was the sweetest thing. And they were, uh, they were um, selling <clears throat> by, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? Uh, what somebody's bidding, hey, but oh, bid, 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 uh, auction. uh, auctioning off yeah. all these great things. And I bought, you know, um, a quilt and stuff. And we just had a fabulous time. But the joke was, why is it that the Amish folk didn't get COVID? And the obvious answer is they didn't have TVs. Right. Right. <laughs> and they're outside all the time. Right. Just blithely uh, <laughs> aloof to the world's concerns. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> So your family, you you grow you grow up uh, in the kind of Bob Jones universe. Absolutely, yes, and it was a closed one at times. Yes, although we did go to a Boulevard Baptist church, which was a little bit unusual for your average Bob Jones person. In that, my father was very much concerned about supporting a local church. Mm. He did not see Bob Jones as a church. He wanted. Uh, a fellowship of sorts, yes, but not a true church. And so he he and he and his and mom would play their cello and violin for the offertories and try to spruce up what was really a very pedestrian culture there mm. in at Boulevard. You know, good old Baptist yeah. uh, with a, a, a what we call. With strains of Shirley Goodness wafting styrofoam ceiling word and uh, <laughs> and and aluminum sidings and and folding chairs type stuff, and yeah. uh, the Lord has saved me from that. By the way, I'm now Anglican, and we believe in incarnational uh, art and the, the the beauty of creation that we can actually be. Uh, uh, in surrounded, ensconced by yes. uh, during worship, but 
that's just, but I, I appreciate my Baptist background, wonderful, wonderful passion and um, purity and love of the scripture. Love that. Uh, still retain that. Still love my King James Version. Just got a 19, 1611 version of the King James Version. It's about, I don't know, eight oh, pounds. Wow. Uh, yeah. So glorious. Just a work of art. What was your instrument? Trombone in rebellion toward uh, all things string because uh-huh. I had to, I had to have one. Okay, I'm going to yeah. do brass. Yeah, and so I would. I remember I so poignantly remember a concert that we had at Boulevard Christian School, and they didn't have folders, or I'd lost mine or something. I had all these rumpled pages of the concert <clears throat> on my stand, and I hit the stand with my with my slide and all these papers come rumpling down and I, I'm picking them up and I could see behind me the pastor and the and the on on the podium and the guest pastor red with laughter trying to hold back because it was just so goofball funny to see all these papers going everywhere. <laughs> so that was that that in an image in a nutshell was my <clears throat> competency <laughs> Uh, in uh-huh. things music, and I tried to to play viola later, and I was just mediocre. And but my daughter Ava Lydia has become a wonderful um, violist, and uh, I have her depicted in a batik in my studio. But <clears throat> yes, yeah, so I was the odd man out of all the eleven children in our family: nine girls and two boys. Wow! I was the. Mm, just nominal, marginal musician. I, you know, I'm a part of our choir now, and I really love music. I love to hear it. Just, just, but I couldn't perform it like they did. You know, my mind would get all a jumble when I tried to play fast notes and all. Where do you fall in the line of those yes. eleven? Yes, I'm third oldest. So, so I, I had, yeah, I'm the oldest boy. Uh, and but I was still under the thumb of my oldest sister. And then the mm-hmm. second sister was like my second mother. Her name was Ruth. And uh, she uh, would come home at kindergarten and give me little quizzes of two plus three and one plus four. <laughs> and I would pass those quizzes. And I felt quite encouraged and emboldened to make my step forward into kindergarten, you know. <laughs> yeah, she was just a sweetie. And uh, so I I just loved my family. How do you think being one of so many children impacts your life? My oh, mom absolutely. My mom is one of 10. My grandmother yes. had 10 okay. kids and four miscarriages, so there could have been 14. I mean, it's- Oh wow. Oh bless your mom. See, my mother had neither twins nor miscarriages. And, you know, she was an only child and she Mm -hmm. said, never again. And so she went about the righteous task of having those 11 kids. But that's a great question about um, what the effect is on a person. And I I think the immediate one is that of you cannot be helicopter parented. You Mm, are forced to be a high, highly an individual. Um, And, you know, they just can't keep track of all those kids. And so you're (laughs) able to do... Get a, get away or, you know, to be able to operate a little bit more independently uh, than most. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. Now, obviously, if you have parents that are just letting you get away with murder, that's a, that's another thing. But I think that, that 
it overall is a helpful thing. I mean, you have the other kids that are setting either examples bad or good. The bad mm-hmm. examples tell you not to try that. I remember my oldest sister landing up in Atlanta in the airport, and my dad had to make a quick trip to spare her, save her from flying away with this naughty friend of hers. I thought, uh-huh. I'm never going to do that again. You know, right. I'm, I'm not going to let that happen to me. You know, so, right. but, but then, but then, you know, she would do well in other things, and I would say, I want to do that. I want to be getting straight A's, and I want to do well in cello. Well, in my instrument, that cello was her instrument. Yeah. Or flute. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's just great to have a big family, in my opinion. I, I think that was one of the seminal aspects of uh, my life was that that hubbub Mm -hmm. um and and to be able to maintain focus in all the commotion around you and knew and i mean we knew what it took to get some focus get to your room you know and get studying and uh everybody you know had to do the the dishes once a week and so we all played a part but it was a, a a group and a community of people that was really moving in the same direction. And Mm. every Saturday night, my dad would tell spooky stories because he was into the paranormal because he loved to tweak the omniscient spirit of science, which thought that science, the the, the hubris of of your typical person that didn't have religion and just science was that science could do everything. And he, he thought quite the opposite, that science was highly limited. Man can't be everywhere at once. It cannot prove a universal negative, uh, that we're limited in what we can see and we're limited in, historically speaking, we can't, we can't tell uh, what has already happened nor what is going to happen in the future, as we've seen with weather forecasts. So sure. um, he, he would read these books on the Thunderbird, on, um, um, you know, the Loch Ness Monster, Sasquatch, and all of this. Yeah. And so he would create these wonderful story, spooky stories on Saturday nights that we would just be agog listening to. And he created this mythical figure called Dr. Spook who lived on Paris Mountain, and he was the only person in America, in the world, who owned a UFO. So he busied himself about rescuing Apollo missions, et cetera, that ran amok and all these things. And uh, it was really quite a quite a quite a fun thing and we would ask questions and and i just look forward to that all week oh i that love a fascinating that. I person love that. yeah that is so cool yeah he he, he really was it and uh, so even even both your parents working at bob jones it still mm-hmm. had to be a tight existence oh yes as far as monetarily speaking, yeah they did not have much money i remember You're good. looking at <clears throat> my um receipts Receipts, and I, I think, if I recall, he got like three hundred dollars a month in in actual cash. His housing was paid for, and his food was paid for. But as far as running around, money paying for his car and stuff like that, and gas and all that, three hundred dollars a month. And remember his tie; he'd always tie thirty dollars a month. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's that's in the you know yeah. in the seventies, you know, yeah. early seventies. Is when it happened. I'm sure his he actually boosted his income from doing an extraordinary thing 
with the university press. He was the first, um, the university press was the first to actually come up with original Christian lit, um, school literature. And he came up with a physical science textbook and the earth science textbook from which he received um, royalties. So um, that was a big step because the other provider of Christian school literature was Abeka Books down in Florida, but they didn't offer anything original. It was all historical um, American teaching material from old times schools. Um, and so that was something that um, he took great delight in. And, and if you, if you, I have one of those textbooks to it shows pictures of his, he's coming home and taking photographs of us kids doing things that related to say like with air pressure he had me pump, pumping a basketball and yeah. and people riding bikes and stuff like that and 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 uh i loved it also at nights occasionally we would get to go out onto the ball field and look at the stars and he would say okay now do you see orion there we go at the top is Beetlejuice. That's a red giant. At the bottom is Rigel. Now you can compare red to blue stars. Every star has its own color. And he would talk about um, to the left is Canis Major. That's Sirius, the dog star. And that's actually two stars. And they're spinning around each other. And he knew so much about stuff like that that was totally fascinating. And he even, on one occasion, we were out, and this is such a random thing, but he saw a star that didn't fit into a, a constellation, and he reported it. And come to find out, he was the first person in the Northern Hemisphere to identify a new... Um, Either, either, either a wandering star or a um, actual um, uh, comet, <clears throat> some oh, sort of wow. a comet, um, and it had been seen in Japan a couple nights before or something. Uh, <laughs> but he was the first because he just knew his constellations. You know, it was just a matter of just seeing it with the naked eye. So yeah, he he uh, was a kind of an and sadly, sadly, sadly. He passed away at the tender age of 55. Oh, wow. Yeah. He had had a duodenal ulcer. They identified it as something to deal with, so they they treated the ulcer. And then a year later, he was he had trouble with constipation, and they found out that he had a ring tumor in his colon, which had spread to his liver. Now, oh. here's, the, here's, the, here's the kicker. He had a great uncle who had the same affliction, a duodenal ulcer, his doctor, this is in 1900, said there must be stress lower down in the intestinal tract. They looked, found the ring tumor, operated on it before it spread, and he lived a full life. This is 87 years before. And so you think it's this is a great um, reminder Everybody personally needs to take interest in their their health and to check their doctors because they could miss some, something. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Coming from that conservative campus yes. into now take us into how then you got into your mm-hmm. to your art career. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. 
because that might not necessarily be the obvious well choice for you. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's what's so amazing about Bob Jones University is that they wed with a very fundamentalist uh, uh, understanding of scripture and practice. They also had the person of none other than Dr. Bob Jones Jr. Now, Dr. Bob Jones Jr. had very high tastes, and Mm. he had very great timing as well. What happened was in post-World War II Europe, there was both a need for ready cash and among the intellectual intelligentsia in the aesthetic circles, a disdain for Baroque art because it was considered passe. And Uh. so he went into Europe and just raked it in for bargain basement prices. He just got all this Rococo and Baroque art and even some um, Caravaggist um, um, uh, high contrast painters of the Netherlands and et cetera. And so he assembled this extraordinary collection and with it a an attitude of along with Dr. Gustafson of high culture so that you know we <laughs> I was just commiserating with a fellow student of a while back about how on Sunday afternoons we had to go to Vespers uh-huh. okay <laughs> at 2 and 4 in the afternoon and we were told Vespers uh, you know, I look back and and think, you know, Bible said that the seventh day is a day of rest, but oh, buddy, we didn't rest <laughs> very much on Sunday. Uh-huh. And and so everybody would, and, and, and this lady was telling me just Friday, she said, and we, we wondered why we were so tired on Mondays. Right. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's very fascinating because, you know, Napoleon tried to go to the 10-day work week. He thought he would get more done and the human body just didn't respond to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so doing it God's way of, of seven, six days of labor and then shall you rest was really the best way. And even Christians can run afoul of that wonderful maxim and mm-hmm. less is moreness. Yeah, yes. And, <laughs> and so yeah. they're just trying to do too much. But, but in those Vespers, I brought that up to say that there would be um, Shakespearean orations. There would be oh, these um, uh, uh, choral works and piano, um, Haydn piano sonata offertories, etc. And, and so we were really inculcated. In fact, I just attended just three weeks ago the first artist series of Bob Jones for this new season, and it was mm-hmm. none other than the Georgia Boy Choir. And Buddy was that a fabulous concert yeah absolutely rich oh absolutely rich well i know that personally because david white their conductor and i grew up i taught him how to play catch and basketball and and all sorts of stuff and he was in competition with his brother who is a a big uh gustav Mahler and um sure. johann bach fan and he ended up he's now uh on on the reserve for being conductor at the met because of a interesting story that occurred but anyway so we his their father was the musicologist mm-hmm. and uh, he his doctoral work doctoral work was on the Kleinmeister um a, a certain Kleinmeister with their boys always joked about a, a composer that nobody's heard of but he was <laughs> the world's authority on um uh-huh. 
<laughs> this guy. So anyway, but <clears throat> I said all that to say that we had a huge emphasis on high culture and we had a phenomena like Dr. Edward Panosian, who knew his history so well that you could go to his lecture and sit there and for an entire hour, he would tell the story of history. Mm. He would talk about Cardinal Richelieu and how he, um, though a Catholic, uh, went against Catholic countries to, uh, to accrue the power of France and these conflicting currents in, in Europe during the 1600s made Europe what it is today, but he knew his stuff and he, and he gave me such a hunger for history that I'm still reading it now today. I just finished a book on Pope Pius V, St. Pope Pius V, who was a pope during a very much of a contrast to the present pope in that he was very much enforcing the Council of Trent, which was really the reformation of the Catholic Church. Mm. And he was the Pope during the Battle of Lepanto, which in 1571 was the huge, <clears throat> huge repulsion of the Ottoman Turks. And in, in the, um, it was a military, a, a marine victory. I mean, um, uh, yeah. ships and all. Yeah. Uh, and just extraordinary extraordinary thing. Don Juan of Austria was the man of the hour. All the Christians in Europe were praying the rosary, and the Pope knew that they had won five days before it was reported because, like, the Holy Spirit told them that they had nailed it. And wow. it's just a fabulous story of history, and, and the, the history of the Barbary pirates trying to take over the Mediterranean. It's just absolutely fascinating. Oh, and, I love history. Oh, it, love, it just gets yeah. better and better. I the love more I cannot wait to get back to um, to to getting more stories. I, I want to I want to explore the fall of Constantinople in 1453, mm. which sort of was the culmination of all that activity, and um, just just so rich. Oh, yeah. I think like, you know, sometimes people like if you could go back to any point in time, what time would you go to? Like, I would love to see like, the Alexandria libraries and like Egypt. Before it burned down. What a yeah. disgrace. You know, I just heard this yeah. morning that it, Alexandria was highly, um, 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 amazingly proportionally more than more than usual of populated with Jewish people. I did not know that. Oh, and, I could see that. Yeah. And uh, that. May have had something to do with uh, the destruction of it, or something. I don't know. I have to work on that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm. But they ran amok, a foul of Rome. I think Alexandria, and so they. I think Rome did them in. But just, just oh, you think of some of these heart-rending and horrific losses, and mm-hmm. Alexandria was one of them. Of all these manuscripts that were just. Put to flame. So when did you start drawing? What was your... Yes. Great question. Now, I, I did it autumn, um, you know, just independently in nursery school. I remember some of the basic figures I was making to depict things, and I loved my brown crayon. I'm just brown and, and a white paper, off-white paper, you know, those off-white papers. Yeah. I remember, and just being perfectly happy. Uh, drawing. And then my parents noticed that I had some ability. And in our in our church was a lady by the name of Beth. Um, oh, this is great stuff. Um, um, Beth Frazier. And she had three children. 
And she was a very accomplished watercolorist. This is hugely important. Mm. She accomplished and became quite um, adept at her watercoloring by necessity. Her husband was a self-appointed roving evangelist. And so he happened (laughs) to be away from home at certain key times when the parents, when the, when the family needed money. Uh So she was, had to rely on herself to, oh, it was brutal. I, from what the stories I've heard, but the guy, the guy was such a, a character. He would walk around with these turn or burn hats on oh. and, 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 you know, tracks in his, his, um, shirt pocket. And buddy, wow, he, he <laughs> was something else. And, uh, <laughs> his boys, one of his boys is like a millionaire. The other owns a, uh, a tennis resort. And uh, they're, they're great. It's a great family. And the third, the, the girl, is uh, the wife of a missionary to the Navajo Indians. So despite it all, all the kids, you know, really turned out <laughs> extraordinary because I think, you know, they kind of had to fend for themselves. Right. So anyway, I got watercolor lessons from Beth Frazier, such a lovely lady. I remember going to her old house on Main Street um, and I remember one on one occasion she shut the dog in the kitchen to keep from bothering us, but she unfortunately caught his tail in the door. And when she opened the door, the whole kitchen was splattered with blood. Oh my god! <laughs> Imagine stuff like that. I just remember these poignant, weird memories. But <clears throat> she <clears throat> she was very capable. I'm so grateful that I had it because. Now, my three media are what I call the sister media of watercolor, reduction linicut, and batik. Actually, watercolor, batik, and reduction linicut in that order. Moving from light to dark. Mm. Um, and that is the, that's the mentality of watercolor and reduction linicut. You want to think of what reduction linicut is. Basically, think of a woodblock, um, an ink stamp. Okay. Wherever you cut, it's going to keep white. And wherever you don't, it's going to maintain that flat surface. And when you roll on ink, it's going to catch the black. Okay. Right. Well, with reduction in a cut, the first color is going to be, say, a pastel yellow. Mm. And then you cut what you want to keep of the yellow later on. Now, of course, you do that 20 times to have an right. addition of 20. Hang, rack them up. Next day, you cut a from your plate, from your piece of linoleum, wherever you want to keep it yellow, and then you cut it, then then you roll it red. And then the next day, you cut with the red and roll it blue. So you've got the three primaries, and then you move into the middle tones. Um, and then I end up usually at least 10 layers of color. Wow. And, uh, but it's the same mentality of working from light to dark, the same with batik. You know, you're hot, waxing the white areas. All the white areas, then I rolled, then I sprayed it all yellow, and then put hot wax on the yellow and sprayed it light red, and then from there to light blue, then light green, then uh, darker blue, darker green, darker red, um, browns, and then finally a very darkest color, and you're done. And so it has this momentum 
of, mm. because it's sort of like watching Polaroid film developing, you know, right. and it tells you basically what to do. You know, you get it out there and you spray on that new color and then you say, eh, I don't like that color. So you hose it off and say, okay, let me try the, instead of a reddish color, I mean, do I try a greenish color and see what that does? And then you say, okay, that works. Let's go with that. I know where I can use it. And so you, you reason it that way. I don't pre-plan these colors. I, I do it as far as what the spray bottle tells me. And, and you're just, and, 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 and the color isn't as important as the value. The mm. darkness and the light of a color are more, far more essential than, I mean, you look at that coat of uh, Peter Rabbit. Right. Uh, well, actually Benjamin Bunny's father. And it's, chock full of all kinds of colors, reds and purples and browns and greens. But overall, it's green, you Mm -hmm. know, it's a green jacket. What inspires your different, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, because some is landscape, some are fanciful characters, Mm -hmm. some are religious. It's purely the visible world. For instance, this morning I was driving and I go through the village of West Greenville where juxtaposed to many of the houses, mill houses is kudzu yeah and at this time of year especially with the change of color into the richer reds and oranges and yellows i mean just arrests me i had to i had to stop after i i was on washington street and i had to make a u-turn and stop my car and get out and just photograph these this wonderful confluence of houses and and a church a churchish Mm -hmm. kind of house that was red i don't know if it's actually a church but it had that feeling and then the bower of of greenery about them to me made a, a beautiful combination, and so yeah, I'm always on the lookout for just things in the world around me. This past spring was absolutely fabulous. I remember coming back from a um, a memorial service, and it was a very dreary day, but there were those pristine little yellow green buds coming out mm-hmm. on the just the uh, just the outer reaches of the limbs of the trees that I wanted to get. So I started photographing, and out of that came a lovely piece, of uh, new work that that was just a celebration of that nascent, glorious green color. There's a wonderful poem read, uh, written called From Gold to Gold, how the beginning colors of spring are golden yellow, yellow green, and then the final colors of fall are the yellows and the golds before they fall. And there's a, a wonderful symmetry of from gold to gold. Do you feel like your inspiration is constantly overflowing or does it dry up? Of late, it's been overflowing because here, here's the fun thing about being in three media is that you want to try, once you've got I can't wait to try Benjamin Bunny in Linnicut. Mm. I just finished Badger, a Badger that I want to try in Linnicut. And then I haven't tried any of my my bucks that I did, my bar bucks in, yeah. in Bardot, the female, <laughs> um, uh, in Linnicut. So that's going to be fun to try. But, you know, I mean, to p- be perfectly honest with you, these, this is kind of lightweight, aesthetically speaking, but that it doesn't mean that I can't learn stuff, and I'm, I'm enjoying it immensely. But I think the deeper pieces are the ones I do of landscapes. Like, I don't know if you mm. saw, if you saw it in my show, there was a big, a very long piece that had mill houses in kudzu. Yes, and it, yes. Fortunately, it was bought by this fellow who owns um, several 
um, factories up and down the East Coast. And he said he's got 35,000 square feet and he's got all kinds of wall space. I said, you go, buddy. (laughs) You can get as much as you want if I can make that much. No, but uh, he got that one huge piece. And uh, I thought that made me happy because Mm. that was like the one piece I wanted to get it. The final piece I finished for the show. And to me, it felt like a more more, um, uh, sincerely art piece that I was advancing in my aesthetic, you know, strivings, you know, but, but, but there is something in that too. It's, it's, it's a little bit more, um, lightweight. We're speaking of the animals, but, but still I'm, I'm, I'm learning and getting color combinations that I haven't, I've been tempted to get more color combinations that I haven't had before. There's the purple of that vest and the pink of the of the, yeah. the kerchief below there. It's a little unusual. What so. inspires the the more fanciful pieces of Yes. I was I was asked by my good friend who refurbished this whole building, this hotel. Um his name is Cliff. Uh he said you really ought to consider doing some anthropomorphic pieces, mm. getting a buck. Okay, his first one was, what if you had a fox being Sherlock Holmes? Mm. And so I did that and enjoyed it <clears throat> and didn't watercolor. And that turned into another and another. And soon I had a whole collection of watercolors. I remember I did a fox that was originally a dude a Peaky Blinders dude that mm. was holding a bunch of hunting dogs. And he was in, you know, Englishy kind of um, jacket and all and hat. But I gave that to a fox, which mm. gave it a, a fun, happy, sinister kind of look of yeah. he's just out on a human hunt or yeah. something, you know. So, uh, and uh, or a fox on a horse. Drinking a hot toddy after a successful right. hunt of humans. Right. You know. So, and this is actually an old medieval trope because in the marginalia of the manuscripts of a lot of these medieval uh, books, there were these very playful things going on of animals and, 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 and rabbits and things doing these marvelously mischievous things Mm -hmm. and so when you have an animal doing something that's wrong you can look objectively and say that pig is being extraordinarily gluttonous that that wolf is being extraordinarily greedy and that leopard is being extraordinarily lustful and we aren't animals now are we so right i remember i had some christian friends coming at me because i did uh, a barbuck that was actually sipping a single malt and puffing a pipe. And 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 he, he was in a, a very awkward position because his son wanted it. And I said, okay, look, <clears throat> this is a medieval thing. And you mm-hmm. can sit back and look objectively at this and say, do I want to be like this animal? Well, doing that might make me that way. I, I you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit, maybe a bit of a stretch, but I, I think that, that, uh, that's the fun of having an animal do stuff is that we can we can have fun and be a little bit more objective and have them doing and it's ironic that they're doing it too mm-hmm. you know because they um, how did you parlay your creativity and your art to a career 
When was that a decision? Yeah, well, that was just from the start. So I had to, um, you know, I, 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 here and there, I tried to stay afloat by working at Starbucks and teaching on the side and doing um, artist in residences mm-hmm. at uh, uh, several schools about. But uh, yeah, that was just a part of my whole being where I was always in a perpetual state of uh, financial brinksmanship, you know, uh-huh. and it's just my poor, poor Leah. She's been through it and she's still with me after 25 years. God bless her. And, you know, she she eventually, you know, she's, she's got a master's degree and I suppose she could have had a radio career, but she also had five children. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she did learn to get a nursing degree. And uh, with that, she uh, used it wisely, some travel nursing. Uh, now she is a nurse at Berea Middle School. She's mm-hmm. Leah of Berea now. <laughs> and boy, this is a very fascinating <laughs> new location. Um, but uh, she's also taken up bike riding with them on the Swamp Rabbit mm, Trail. That's a fabulous little thing that. with Clemson uh, Extension where they are paying people to actually help these kids ride bikes. And she's found a, a, a child oh, that, that is in special need, an only child overweight um, and needing to be outside. And, and it's, it's just a beautiful thing to see. I think the Swamp Rabbit Trail has been such a wonderful gift to the Greenville mm. community because I look, yeah. you, all you have to do, see, I worked behind the Peace Center at River Place and I would watch the people walking along the Swamp Rabbit Trail and going, I was saying to myself, that person in his physical state or her physical state would not be out there had it not been for a place that was easy to access mm-hmm. and was a beautiful, entertaining walk. Mm-hmm. You know, it lures people out to be more fit and to be more active. I think that's just so wonderful. And more communal. Yes, yes. Yeah. Why, they might even ease over to the Swamp Rabbit Cafe and, and uh, enjoy time with other people. I think it's just fabulous. One question I love to ask all of my guests before uh, we kind of wrap up our conversation is, and we talked about so many different people in your life and historical figures and different things, so I'm I'm really excited to to get this answer from you. But I always ask, if you could sit down and have a conversation with someone living or past uh, like we did today, who would you like to sit down with and talk with? Wow, it's hard to pick so many. Of course, Jesus, I would love to talk to, and I would love to talk to Mary and Joseph and get the backstory on all this stuff, Mm. because I mean, just this 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 Titanic anchor that turned all of civilization. I mean, you look at the impact of Christianity on culture, Mm -hmm. where where I mean, Christianity basically invented science, and they don't like to talk about that because the state of academia is in one of full rejection of Christianity. But you understand that the Christian mentality was that of there are secrets to be found. The pagan mentality was that of everything's magic, a mystery, Mm -hmm. and we just sit in wonder of it. Well, that's wonderful, but what powers the scientific mind is that secrets can be, there is a maker who holds the secrets and with sustained efforts, we can start unraveling some of these secrets. Um, But 
Okay. Having read recently, I would love to talk to George Washington. He is mm. just a titan of of of. Um, but 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 Stonewall Jackson. I, I was just reading about him. <laughs> How in the world um, he 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 had such um, vision and. Uh, he 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 probably could have won the Civil War right, right there at the first Battle of Bull Run if 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 they listened to him and and all sorts of crazy things in history that turn on a dime mm. that you would love to 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 interview these people can you can you imagine um, talking to uh, like Thomas Cranmer and mm. uh, some of these oh people goodness, at, yeah. at at the, at the really focus of yeah. the the English Reformation and. And like, if I could find a way to uh, keep the Protestants from um, blowing up the the monasteries uh, in England and all the and then the Vikings, King Alfred the Great. Now there's there's somebody that was absolutely amazing in holding um, the line against the Viking invasions and coming making a huge comeback in the late eight eight hundreds. And uh, the Venerable Bede talking all about it. Um, well, he, yeah, he was he was pre-Alfred, I think, but unbelievable. Such a wealth of people, and I think that they were they were notched up a few levels higher than most of us because they were not tamped down and jaded down by all the movies they they didn't mm. watch and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that was crazy stuff. Wouldn't we love to just sit and have coffee with some of these people? And they say, well, um, I've got to leave. i got stuff to do. You yeah. Know, you, you wouldn't yeah. be able to sit with them very long because they're probably buckets of energy, too. Yeah. Because they were doing stuff. They weren't just, just postulating about it. <laughs> Thank you so much for sitting with me. This was such Thank a you. joy. I love your energy. Thank you so well, much. I am so grateful that, that that you're willing to open up conversation and to have um, uh, uh, some repartee. I, I just love that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish, while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com, where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week, and as always, thank you for your support.